0: Welcome and thank you for joining us for the NABIP Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Benefits and Insurance Professionals. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. The podcast is distributed on these platforms every Friday and is included in NABIP's weekly member-exclusive health policy newsletter, The Washington Update, giving you a head start on your healthcare happy hour. President Joe Biden delivered the 2023 State of the Union address on Tuesday evening. As usual, healthcare and the administration's healthcare priorities were a large part of the presidential address. Hey, speaking of addresses in D.C., are you ready to come to 400 New Jersey Avenue Northwest? Because that's where NABIF's 2023 Capital Conference will be hosted. We know listeners have been anxiously awaiting our association's talking points for members' meetings with their lawmakers, and on this week's episode of the Healthcare Happy Hour, Marcy Buckner returns to discuss some of our legislative priorities for Capital Conference, as well as the State of the Union Address. So, Marcy, before we dive into all things Capcom, let's quickly recap the relevant portions of President Biden's Address on Tuesday. Healthcare, as mentioned, was certainly one of the most talked about topics from the State of the Union. So, what did the president talk about in relation to healthcare?
1: President Biden really did what I'm calling a, a victory lap on the Inflation Reduction Act, m- mentioning many of the pieces that were passed in that reconciliation bill towards the end of 2022. And just a reminder of of things that were in that package, and then at the end of the year package that we saw in the omnibus bill in December, the Congress was able to pass a provision allowing the Secretary of HHS to negotiate drug prices for Medicare. This is something that is going to be phased in, as well as a cap on Medicare out-of-pocket costs at $2,000 beginning in 2025. So two big pieces for Medicare beneficiaries when it comes to cost. But remember, on negotiating those drug prices, it, it is set at a small number of drugs, starting at about 10 drugs, and then it goes, it increases over the years, it phases in more and more um, prescription drugs, but it does not allow the secretary by any means to negotiate all drug costs within Medicare. So just kind of a, a caution there. There was also another piece on Medicare capping insulin costs at $35. So a lot going on when it comes to the Medicare side. And the reason that's important is oftentimes Medicare is used as kind of an experimental market where different cost savings measures are tried out there to see whether it's something that could work on the private market. So while well, of course we want to make sure that we are maintaining costs of drugs for seniors and beneficiaries in Medicare, we also want to see some of those savings in, in the private market. So having these tested out in the Medicare market is really important. President Biden also, outside of the Medicare market, was touting a record breaking enrollment in ACA exchanges at 16.3 million. We are, as you all know, just a couple of weeks out from this past year's open enrollment. And at Capital Conference, we'll be joined by Dr. Ellen Monts, who is the head of SECIO, so who leads the federal marketplace. And we'll be hearing a little bit more about that 16.3 million in enrollment from her, as well as the impact that agents and brokers had on that exchange enrollment this past year.
0: So you mentioned the insulin cap for Medicare beneficiaries beginning this year. One of the biggest statements the president made on Tuesday was in regards to insulin costs going one step further in the state of the union by saying that he would like to see a $35 insulin cap for all Americans. So what do we make of this comment?
1: NABIP agrees with the president about the ridiculous cost of insulin, both currently in the Medicare market, even with that $35 cap, along with outside in the private market. However, we are cautious about putting a blanket cap on insulin costs in the private market. And this is because even with that cap on the Medicare market, worry that it's going to shift costs onto the private market, which could lead to increase in other areas. So we think that instead of just putting a blanket cap on insulin costs in the private market, that Congress should really look at ways to address the problem comprehensively of increased costs on pharmaceuticals and insulin specifically, instead of just doing a a blanket cap. Because like I said, this could lead to shifting costs elsewhere. That being said, we are working with a lot of our different coalitions on this specific issue so that we can provide a more strategic response and provide possibly some other cost-saving measures specific to insulin aside from just a blanket cap so that we can be more productive in our conversations with Congress on this. So that, like I said, is something that we're, we're working on with our coalition. So we'll have more on that in the coming weeks. But we do want to caution that we, we of course, agree that the skyrocketing cost on insulin is something that needs to be addressed. We just want to make sure that we're addressing it in a way that truly cuts costs for consumers.
0: Moving on to our 2023 Capital Conference talking points, which will be available to all members attending Capital Conference next week. This year, we have longer talking points than we normally do. Is that correct?
1: Yes. So, Part of that is introducing ourselves with our new name, NABIP, the National Association of Benefits and Insurance Professionals. But another part is we do have many of our traditional broad issues that we want to discuss with members of Congress. And I know, Dan, you and I will discuss those in a minute. But there are also some really specific pieces that are a little in the weeds that we want to talk to members of Congress about. And it's also a way to introduce NABIP As subject matter experts to members of Congress and and show that we are able to talk about a lot of these more complex things, which NEHU did already have that reputation for. So, we wanna make sure that we are continuing to show that even with our new name and provide some of these really, like I said, in the weeds issues that normally we talk about with members of Congress through staff and really targeted meetings with our NABIT members. And here we're going to be doing this in a more broad fashion with our talking points at Capital
0: Conference with all of our members. So the talking points are split into three sections, addressing the cost of care, reserving employer-sponsored coverage, and Medicare. So let's begin with the first section on the cost of care. What are we saying here?
1: Sure. So a lot of our comments in some of the other sections do essentially get at cost, but they are more in the employer market. So one of the main pieces that is just cost of care that impacts many different markets is the issue of what's called site neutral payment. With this, right now we're seeing a lot of mergers and acquisitions. We're seeing hospital systems buying up physician practices. And when that happens, they are billing differently for the site at which care is provided. So we're seeing the same care that's given at a hospital versus a physician's private office that is being billed differently depending on where that care is being provided. We believe that it shouldn't matter where you're getting your x-ray or MRI or checkup. That payment for these treatments should be what we're calling site neutral. So it shouldn't matter where the care is being provided. The cost should be the same. We shouldn't see it skyrocketing because they're having an x-ray done at the hospital versus the physician's office, or sometimes it's, it's the other way around where it's more expensive to go to the physician's office. So This is something that we believe is one of the most important things Congress can do to maintain prices and essentially be able to see prices being lowered across the board because we're not having these vast differences based on where the care is being provided.
0: So regarding the second section on employer-sponsored coverage, obviously a big topic for NAPIP as always, is the employer tax exclusion. So what are we saying here?
1: Well, our songbook has not changed on the employer tax exclusion. And this is one of those broader issues that is a traditional issue of ours to speak about during Capital Conference. And it's because the employer exclusion is so important. This is that tax provision that allows employees to deduct from their income the funds that employers provide to them in the form of health insurance benefits. The reason this is so important is it lowers the taxable income for employees, and it also provides a huge tax benefit to employers. However, folks on both sides of the aisle have been eyeing this benefit for years, a potential to tax. And just recently, there was a new report from the Congressional Budget Office that looks at what different areas where the government could possibly raise funds. And this, once again, was one of those areas. And this year, in that report, because it's it's cited quite often in different reports of how the government could raise funds. And this year, the estimated funds that could be raised by taxing this benefit were exponentially larger than they have estimated in the past at about $600 billion. So you can imagine that looks very attractive to a federal government that is trying to balance a budget or deal with a deficit. We caution, though, that that $600 billion would be coming out of mostly middle-class Americans' pockets. And it could be the largest increase in taxes on middle-class Americans that we've seen in decades if they try to go after this. And so what they would do would, it would be to, instead of receiving those benefits without being taxed, so it, like I mentioned, lowers the taxable income for employees, they would either tax all of that at a certain percentage Or they would, what we say, cap exclusion and say 80% of those benefits are taxed or 75% of those benefits are taxed, which would still be quite a hefty price tag on employees and employers. This also is such a benefit to employers. They use their benefits as a way to attract and recruit employees. And it also is a cost saving measure for employers. So, if this is capped or completely repealed, we think that this would be a barrier for employers to continue offering coverage because they wouldn't have a lot of the tax in- incentives to do it. Or it could be so costly to continue to maintain those plans for employees that they no longer buy into them. And so, it's no longer something employers can use as a recruitment tool. So, there are a lot of different reasons why we believe that we. need to preserve the tax exclusion. But we do want to highlight this because, like I mentioned, we have that new estimate that has increased how much it could bring in in funds. And so, like I mentioned, members on both sides of the aisle see those dollar signs. And we need to really make this a personal issue and bring faces to this of of how much it could cost people. Over 188 million Americans get employer-sponsored coverage, and if they are left without This tax exclusion that is so beneficial to being able to access that care, we can't guarantee that they're going to be able to afford coverage in another market. So we want to make sure that we're not trading those those dollar signs for leaving people without coverage.
0: Another cornerstone of our employer-sponsored coverage advocacy work and in our talking points this year is employer reporting reform. So what are we asking members to say in their meetings here?
1: This is another topic that we have discussed in, in years prior at Capitol Conference. And this is that Common Sense Reporting Act that it would allow employers voluntarily so If you like the employer reporting system the way it is now, you would be able to continue to maintain that. But this would allow another option that would be voluntary for employers to report at the beginning of the year what they're offering employees instead of at the end of the year the way that we do now with those look-back periods and measurement periods. We also believe that this would be very helpful to the federal government because under the system, employers would After they have reported at the beginning of the year what they're offering and who they're offering coverage to, that would be something that would be in what we call the data hub with HHS, IRS, and the Department of Labor. So that then later in the year, if one of those employees or a spouse or a dependent went to go to the exchange and apply for an individual plan and a subsidy, Right now, they have to attest as to whether they are offered an affordable offer of coverage. And that is technically a legal question. And it's something that when individuals go to the exchange and they see that question pop up, they might look at what they're contributing towards their employer-sponsored coverage and feel like that's not affordable. That's actually very expensive. When in actuality, it may not be more than 9.5% of their household income. And so technically, it legally is an affordable offer of coverage from that employer. So when individuals do that and they say, no, I don't have an affordable offer of coverage, many of them end up enrolling in a plan, sometimes getting a subsidy. And then afterwards, when they do their taxes and their taxes are reconciled, it shows that they did actually have an affordable offer of coverage for their employer. And so then they're set up to pay those subsidies back and their taxes in the coming tax years. So if this information was already sent to HHS, the IRS, and DOL, then when that person goes to the exchange and tries to apply for a subsidy, when it asks if they have an affordable offer of coverage, if they said no, it would pop up and say, no, actually, we do have a report from the employer that you do have an affordable offer of coverage. So you may still waive that coverage and go on to an individual plan but you won't qualify for a subsidy. So this would prevent millions of dollars of subsidies from going out the door to, to people who may not actually qualify for them, and then also prevent the IRS from having to try to go after and recoup those funds. It also has a huge benefit to employers, other than just being a bit easier than the retrospective reporting that we have now. It also would prevent, since it would prevent some of those subsidies from going out that may not be accurate, it also would prevent those stacks of 226J letters that the IRS sends out to employers telling an employer that they have a penalty for an employee not receiving coverage or going to the exchange when, you know, they may have actually had an affordable offer of coverage. So. It helps on a lot of different areas, both on the employer end, but also on the federal government side with a lot of the things that they are struggling to keep up with, with the way that the employer reporting system is structured now.
0: The next bullet in this section, for the first time in my working here, end-stage renal disease is included in our talking points. So what is NAPIP supporting in this area?
1: Well, currently, Dan... For people who have end-stage renal disease, if they qualify for Medicare, which many of them do, Medicare as a secondary payer kicks in for a coordination period of 30 months to cover the care for what we call ESRD, end-stage renal disease. The reason that we're bringing it up here is that there have been a few different proposals that have suggested that instead of Medicare secondary payer covering this, that this cost be shifted to employers. ESRD is very expensive. And the reason that we caution on this is is not just that cost to employer plans, which we know employers don't, their pockets aren't so deep that you can never reach the bottom, right? Employer costs are already very high and so when they're negotiating their plan designs they need to know whether this is something that's going to be up to employers to cover if Medicare secondary payer will no longer be covering it for those first 30 months but the other issue here and it's not that we don't want people with ESRD covered like obviously we want people to get the the treatment that they need the issue here is Very technical with a lawsuit that actually went up to the Supreme Court about coverage for ESRD. But the reason that we are talking about it is that the way that the proposals for shifting the cost of ESRD onto employers, the way that it's worded, is very broad and open ended. And we caution on the wording of this and shifting to employers because we feel that it could open the door to mandating coverage for specific diseases. And uh, many of you have have been to DC, you've come to Capitol Conference, you see all the buildings downtown, and you see the names of all of the associations. And there is an association representing pretty much every industry and We say every body part, every disease. So if we open this up for specific diseases being able to go to Congress and say that employers need to cover specific disease at a specific level, and this is different than the way that like the essential health benefits are listed out for qualified health plans for what employers cover. So if we open this up to say you have to cover a a specific disease, we're going to see All of these different associations representing all of these different illnesses going and asking for just this same piece. And that's not the way that the qualified health plans were set up to cover different items and the way that the essential health benefits were designed under the ACA. So that's what we're cautioning over. It's not about, you know, that we don't want in stage renal disease covered. We do, but we need to be careful on how the wording is put together in these bills to make sure. We're not just writing a blank check for different groups to approach Congress and lobby for coverage in the same way.
0: And then finally, in this section, we bring up civil monetary penalties on employers relative to certain network requirements. So what network requirements are we talking about and what is our position here?
1: This is another thing that we have talked about with our legislative council and Specific working groups and NABIT members for a couple of years now. And we are bringing to all of you to discuss with your members of Congress because we're seeing this coming up repeatedly. And the issue here is we've seen some proposals that would penalize employers for noncompliance with network adequacy provisions for mental health parity. What does that all mean? It means that. If an employer's network does not meet the network adequacy standards for mental health parity, meaning that they're offering the same coverage and access to mental health care providers as other types of health care providers, they'll be penalized. And that's boiling it down a whole lot. The reason why we're talking about this is because, once again, the way that this is structured, NABIP supports access to mental health. We think that there is a lot to be done to improve access to mental health, but this is not a way to do that. The reason why we're saying that is because the way that networks are set up, the providers are contracting with the carriers to set up the networks. They're contracting with either the carriers or a third-party administrator a TPA. They're not contracting with the And so when you penalize the employer, and these are civil monetary penalties, so it's it adds up pretty fast. When you penalize them and put a fee on the employer for an agreement between the carrier and the healthcare provider, you're penalizing the employer for something they have no control over. So we're we're kind of saying, hey, this isn't fair without saying this isn't fair, because that's not necessarily a legal argument, but here. You know, the employer is not included in those negotiations between the carrier and the providers to be in network. So they shouldn't have to pay when a carrier's network that they're contracting with doesn't meet those network adequacy standards for mental health parity. We think instead of doing this, Congress should focus on ways to encourage mental health providers to join networks. Right now, the way that many of them are structured. They're able to be reimbursed more for not being in networks. So we think that Congress should take action to entice healthcare providers for joining networks and also to promote people going into the mental healthcare field instead of penalizing employers for something that's totally out of their control.
0: And our last section in our talking points is all things related to Medicare. So... Our first bullet in the Medicare section is dedicated to some recent marketing requirements that we have discussed repeatedly on the podcast. So in our talking points, what do we say about these new burdensome recording requirements?
1: Well, our loyal listeners will know that we have been talking about these Medicare marketing rules for, gosh, almost a year now or over a year from when they were proposed So rules are currently in place that do require independent agents and brokers to record telephonic enrollment conversations, which means phone conversations and Zoom conversations, but not in person. But they are required to record those enrollment calls and store them for 10 years. We have a lot of, of different issues with this. And again, we have entire podcasts just dedicated specifically to this, but We think that independent agents and brokers, because of your relationships with your clients, because of, in some cases, the limited resources that you have, being able to record and store these conversations, which oftentimes are quite lengthy, and then to store them for 10 years is very costly and can, quite frankly, put some of our independent agents and brokers out of the market. The reason for these rules was to try to protect beneficiaries from bad actors, from fraudulent actors, and by putting agents and brokers out of the market because they can't afford to comply with this, is really leaving those beneficiaries with no other choice but to contact those unscrupulous actors, and they're left in their hands. So we think, and this is a bill that was introduced last session, and we're trying to get reintroduced in this Congress, this provision would exclude independent agents and brokers from those recording requirements in this rule and any future rule so that they're not bound by those really restrictive requirements. And this is something, you know, we caution about not just on the burden of the agent and brokers, but also the beneficiary, the way that the rules are written now, if the beneficiary says, no, I don't want to be recorded, I'm not comfortable with that, the agent has to end the call. So as you can imagine, that can be very restrictive to access to agents by beneficiaries, once again. And beneficiaries have a lot of different reasons for not wanting to be recorded. They're about to talk about their medical and financial history. And to think about that being stored in the cloud for 10 years is very overwhelming to many people. So these are just mountains of reasons why we believe that this requirement should not be placed on independent agents and brokers. And where we haven't been able to get CMS to support a change to the rule, we are going to Congress and asking them to act
0: instead. We do have two Medicare bullets that a majority of folks will already be familiar with, the issues of COBRA as creditable coverage and observation status. Can you briefly review these issues?
1: Yes. So COBRA as creditable coverage would allow COBRA to be treated as creditable coverage. Right now, if you age into Medicare and for some reason you go onto COBRA instead of going onto Medicare... When you do finally make that switch, you're penalized, and that penalty stays with you for life. However, we believe that COBRA should be treated as creditable coverage, similar to how employer-sponsored coverage is treated as creditable coverage, because COBRA technically is employer-sponsored coverage. So we are supporting a bill that would allow a one-time special enrollment period for someone who did go on to COBRA instead of Medicare to elect that special enrollment period and enroll in Medicare without that penalty being applied and going with them. The other familiar issue that we have discussed in the past is observation status. So right now, if you're a Medicare beneficiary and you go to the doctor or you go to the hospital and you are admitted, you're admitted either as observation status or inpatient status. And these two Observation status and inpatient status are treated very similarly. And the treatment and care that you receive under those two different terms is almost exactly the same, but you are billed very differently. If you are observation status, you are billed more than being inpatient status. Also, if you need further care and need to go to a skilled nursing facility or a SNF, you need to have two midnights as inpatient status to be able to go to the snf and have it covered as a higher level from medicare. So if you're coded as observation status, but you had the exact same care that you you would have received under inpatient status and then you go to a snf, you're going to be billed more from medicare. We have brought this up as you guys know for for years as an issue. During the pandemic, they put in place special rules allowing observation status to be treated as inpatient status so that Folks aren't being billed more for Medicare and that they're able to go to a SNF after the two midnights, even if it was observation status and not inpatient status. We would like those special rules to continue beyond the pandemic and be put in place permanently. So, where we had a bit of a reprieve because of COVID, we also are waiting data from Medicare to show that there really was no increase in cost to them for doing this because people were finally able to get the care that they needed. I can talk for a long time about this, Dan, and we will from the stage when we go over these different issues for folks that are coming to Capitol Conference to talk to your members of Congress about. But this is the observation status is also very problematic because hospitals can go back and change the way someone was coded and change them from inpatient status to observation status. And Medicare beneficiaries can end up with a bill months later. Because the hospital system went back and recoded someone, the reason they do that is because they want to show that they had low rates of readmission of the same person coming back uh, for the same care in order to get higher levels of funding from Medicare. So this is very dangerous for a, a number of different reasons, not just to the Medicare beneficiaries pocketbook, but also for being able to track some of that data and have transparent and accurate data of those readmission rates.
0: So finally, NABIP is advocating for a new Medicare Part D open enrollment period. So can you describe what that would mean for beneficiaries? Yes, and we are comparing this to what we
1: see in the Medicare Advantage market and the way that that OEP works. Um, and for those of you who have been in the Medicare market for a while, you will remember when the MA OEP, so the Medicare Advantage open enrollment period, the MA OEP, you'll remember when that went away during the ACA and then NABIP lobbied for it to be reintroduced. And the reason was with Medicare Advantage beneficiaries, they are able through their OEP, have the first three months of the year to be able to switch between plans. So after they enroll during their AEP, annual enrollment period, they are able then during the first three months of the year during the OEP to switch plans one time. So you're not switching continuously between plans or, or shopping around that way, but you get a one time to the switch plans. If you realize that the plan that you enrolled in doesn't meet your needs. And so we feel as though with Medicare Part D, which covers uh, prescription drugs, that something similar is needed here for beneficiaries to be able to try out their plan. And if they realize that you know, a certain treatment or prescription that they receive under the plan they enrolled isn't covered, that they'd be able to do a one-time switch to make sure that they're in the plan that best fits their needs. So that's what we're asking for here. We think that this has worked very well under the, like I said, the MA OEP. So we're approaching Congress to help support Medicare beneficiaries with a Part D OEP.
0: It is now time for the Bip Healthcare Happy Hour Toast of the Week. So Marcy, who are we toasting to this week?
1: This week, we're toasting to Gianna Caldwell, who will be our keynote speaker at Capitol Conference this year. Gianno is a political pundit and consultant here in D.C. and also provides correspondence for Fox News. So we are interested in hearing what he has to say about the political spectrum here in D.C. and what we can do to get things done in Congress. Cheers!
0: Thank you for joining us for NAPIP's Healthcare Happy Hour the official podcast of the National Association of Benefits and Insurance Professionals. For more information on NABIP's Government Affairs efforts, or to become a member, visit NABIP.org.